Welcome back. We're here for another podcast from the War Room. Uh, this is the Extra Hop TME podcast, and we are here with a couple of TMEs, but this week we've decided to pare things down a little bit. So we have here... Chris, how's it going, guys? And I am Colin, as is very often the case. Yeah. And we're here flying as a duo today rather than with, like, eight people in the room. Getting a little unwieldy. Yeah. Mostly for scheduling, actually, beyond anything else. It's always interesting having nine people in the room when you're recording something live, but even that part, personally, I can deal with a little bit more easily than the it doesn't happen for weeks at a time because somebody's out and somebody's sick and somebody's kids are sick. and Funny. We're busy. Shocker. Odds mm. are we're busy. Individually, we're busy. Collectively, it's a mess. So. Which you might have actually noticed considering it's been mm, a couple months. Since I think we... it's been a month. I think it's been a month. Maybe six weeks. Okay. Yeah. It's been far too long since we've podcasted. Since there's been podcasting since podcastification has occurred. But we're here now. We are, in fact. And since our last podcast... Uh, Rather we, large things have happened. Just just a little bit. Uh, we actually released a .o. Yeah, which is a huge deal. And part of the reason that we were so busy and not able to podcast is that we were all you know, kind of heads down working on this thing. So... What's a .o mean? So we released 5.0. It's our latest release. Uh, it includes uh, rebranding, a uh, new platform. So just going over the rebranding, naming really fast for you guys. Uh, what you used to call an extra op appliance, just our base node, we're now referring to as an EDA, an extra op discover appliance. And that's the extra op everyone's known and loved forever. Yep. It's the thing that does the ingest off the wire and it'll, it'll parse your wire data and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Correct. But and now that's EDA. Correct. Right. We also have what was the ECM, uh, that is now the ECA, the extra op command appliance. Uh, and this is going to be your single pane of glass, aggregate all of the different metrics that you're producing across many different EDA nodes. Sure. Last but not least is our new appliance, the EXA, the Xdrop Explore appliance. Uh, and this is actually what we, I mean, we've spent months and months getting this out to you guys, really getting uh, to explore and see what capabilities we can do. I see what you did there. Explore hmm. with the Explore appliance. And I'll, the... I'll pretend that was on purpose. Okay. Uh, so what is EXA? Right. So the idea... Uh, behind the Explore appliance is to begin looking at a different level of granularity. So first let's put into context kind of what ExtraHop historically has done and done very, very well. No one here is saying that we are changing what we do, we're just adding to it, right? So we're expanding the kind of addressable subset of use cases that we can help with. Historically, ExtraHop has done a very, very good job of pulling data off the wire in real time and giving you kind of summary metrics, right? Mm -hmm. Figuring out, oh, how many requests have gone to that host or what kind of rates are we seeing or those sorts of things. It's roll-up data. It's working in the realms of sums of total number of transactions, counts, Means. averages. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right. So it's able to do that stuff really, really well and really efficiently and quickly. However, there's always been this kind of gap where if what you want is to say, hey, look, it looks like we're getting whatever, whether it's a high number of positive traffic or a high number of errors or some anomaly occurs and you want to say, okay, now let's go look back and see what actually caused that. To an extent, you can do that with a Discover appliance. You can certainly go through and find out you know, which URI is getting the most requests or which error status code is coming back the most often or whatever those things are. 
But I'm talking about not just seeing the summary of what's causing the problem, but seeing the actual problem as it occurred, which means transactions, right? Mm -hmm. I, I want to know all of the different variables that could possibly affect that specific pattern of behavior. So you want to know which client it is. You want to know which server they hit. You want to know, <clears throat> excuse me, which URI, what were their headers, what was the query. All of that goes into some aspect of performance, some aspect of optimization, any sort of errors that you might see. Um, and understanding each one of those elements together is really what providing a transactional log is about, right? Right. So once you have a transaction log, you have the idea of I'm able to store, like you're saying, the absolute granular details about each thing that happened. But you're interestingly able to also see a lot of kind of relative information that's important, the correlation between, okay, what happened before and after X event, or if I've seen X event, which other users are experiencing it and which behaviors are similar versus disparate. And you can pretty rapidly start tracking down what might be the cause or what might be at least a similar thing that's worth investigating and handing off to a you know an applications team or that kind of stuff. And it's really, really powerful. The ability to log at a transaction level what's occurring takes out any guesswork. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, absolutely. And this is actually something that a lot of you are probably, uh, if you've been XDrop customers or users for a while, have actually seen us release many different technologies around, especially around the open data stream, the ODS technologies that we have, be it using uh, Syslog or REST, even MongoDB, writing to these external data stores with the same type of information. Uh, it was just that we would typically work with partners. Yep, it's the exact same idea, but now there's an in-house turnkey appliance that works with EDA out of the box. Mm -hmm. You stand it up, you point, literally, it's a, a one text box field on the Discover appliance, the, the old school XDrop. You give it an IP address of the new EXA appliance, it asks for a username and password once you hit go, and it's done. Like, and now it starts working, right? Yep. Pretty sweet stuff. And for all of the different protocols that we parse, we actually have built-in record formats so that it's no work on your part. You don't have to say, well, for this specific web transaction, I want to know the URI and the processing time. We've done all of that work for you. You get all of that summarized really easy uh, and, like Colin said, almost no configuration. In the spirit of leading questions, what is a record format, Chris? So a record format is easiest to think about as a schema of how your data is actually formatted. So you need to know, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, is a field something that you want to take averages or sum or do a count against, or is it something that you'd want to do some like string manipulation against? So for example, uh, having a URI, well, you want to be able to say, does this URI contain extrahop.com, right? Um, whereas for processing time, I'd want to find all of the processing time that was greater than 100 milliseconds or one second. Um, so it'll provide schema around different data types, as well as tell the EXA how to display certain information. Here are the uh, default display elements that I want. So I always want to see URI, always want to see client IP, server IP, and processing time, as well as RTT, for example. Sure. But then you have additional elements that you can add into that view. And so we can actually mark those as hide by default, but then make them available. Um, and again, we have those for pick a protocol. Tons of stuff. 
In addition, we also have uh, totally extensible. So you have a specific application that you want to build a record format for. Uh, we provide you all the tools, all the documentation. It's really easy, actually. Um, if you're comfortable making a JSON object, yeah, that's all it is. You can absolutely build a record and commit those and have your own special, unique records to dig through. So that's a super solid description of like the internals of what a record format is. Let me step back a little bit and kind of touch on why that matters. Like in, in what context are we talking about that? So we just talked about how there's this new appliance, it's awesome, it slices and dices and you know scrubs your bathroom for you, and it stores transactions. A record format is the format in which it stores those transaction records, right? You, you, you get these things where you're actually able to store data in the EXA and you're basically building a format, you're building a template for the data that's going to get stored. Because we don't, again, <clears throat> excuse me, we still don't store full packet data. We're not storing the entire packet like a PCAP would. We're still taking out metadata. And this is basically a descriptor of what metadata in which formats we want to store. Is that fair? Uh, yes. But actually, so a little pro tip on using it, you actually don't need a record format before you commit data. Sure. The record format is actually more of a visualization side. So you can actually commit arbitrary data if you think something might be useful. Sure. You can actually commit that as well. But that's, I mean, that's exactly right. Cool. So if you want to store, for instance, HTTP, SQL, whatever data, mm -hmm. you would generally speaking apply a record format that you know, is built for that protocol so that it can flag things appropriately so that it's easy to visualize later. Like Chris was saying, we have built-in stuff for pick a protocol, I love that. Like I wanna put in little brackets on the website somewhere, like pick a protocol. That's kind of how we work is we deal with most of the common ones. And then as like you were saying, extensible past that, right? Yeah. Okay, so that's awesome. We have tons of information about transactions, how is that useful? Like, how does this apply to somebody in daily life? How are they gonna actually use this stuff, right? Yeah, so I think that's a, a great question. And I think we've talked about a little bit how going from summary to transaction level, hopping from those, uh, this is the general performance of my application to one specific transaction. And I know that you've done some work with the RUM bundle and heard a lot of a lot of praise actually for it. People really, really dig the RUM bundle. Yeah. So. So, the RUM bundle, uh, in case anybody hasn't seen or heard of it yet, it's out on the website. It's been there for a long time, actually. Ryan Corder, one of the teammates, built this awesome bundle for RUM. RUM is uh, real user monitoring. The idea is you want more information than it is possible to collect at the server side or off the wire. You want to know what the client is actually doing. What's the client experience? What's, you know, all these metrics that are super intricate that a lot of web development uh, people care about, and frankly, a lot of anybody that's concerned about user experience, so uh, e-commerce apps and all that kind of stuff. What's the perceived load time? What's the DOM load time? How long did it take for JS how, to load? How long did it take? You know, all those sorts of things. From the, it's, from the client perspective, how long does everything actually take to be functional and usable? Yeah. The, you might have all of the bits and bytes. That doesn't mean that I can click or start entering or start reading or right. whatever. And we can log uh, on the server side from the DMZ, from the data center, we can see how long it take took to finish transferring a page. But like Chris is saying, that doesn't actually tell us what the user experience was like. They might be able to start using the, the application far before the packets finished getting to their actual client. Moreover, it also allows us to see things like, oh, 
I loaded this page, but it took too long to load, so I closed it before it finished. Or I opened a tab and never navigated into it and closed it later. And so all this really, really detailed information that isn't possible to instrument anywhere other than the client. So how does this actually work with EXA? Yeah, so you would, you would think that we don't have visibility to that, but what Ryan found is there are several of these tools, including one called Boomerang, which is open source, which is built by Yahoo. It's a big deal. It's been around for years, and a lot of folks in the industry use it as a standard now anyway. Basically, it's a super simple chunk of JavaScript that gets injected into uh, an HTTP response that comes from the server to the client after they've requested a page, and then that can get injected however you want, whether it's at the load balancing tier or at the app level or whatever you want. Once it's injected, the client sees it, and browsers these days, modern browsers, have timing APIs built in. They, they just have these methods that are able to be called. There's these hooks that say, tell me how long until the DOM loaded, tell me how long until the page was interactive, all these different things. So all the RUM bundle is doing is giving you something that is able to interpret the data from those hooks. The trick is getting it from the client back to the extra hop, because we don't see the client. It turns out with Boomerang and a lot of these things, you're actually able to get a beacon that gets sent from the client back into a server inside the, ne the network, and then the extra hop can see it. We parse it off the wire, bing, bang, boom. Suddenly the extra hop has this data. Okay, so that's the brief explanation of the RUM stuff, which wasn't as brief as I'd like, but it's kind of complex. So it's, it's powerful, it's awesome, and people are loving it. I go to user groups and talk about this stuff, uh, the RUM stuff is almost always the most popular, interesting thing. People go, oh my gosh, I didn't know you guys could do all this, etc., etc." Great. How does it apply to EXA? Well, it turns out the summary data for things like RUM is, are, are they interesting, right? I want to know, generally speaking, what are average load times, what are user experience numbers, all that kind of stuff. But it's really, really powerful when you start getting down to the transaction level. There's a really great demo out on the website, and it shows a lot of this stuff, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but it shows a RUM walkthrough in particular, and I was able to use that on a bunch of different stuff, whether it was analyst calls or early customer talk conversations, and basically what it shows is the idea of an e-commerce app, and they are experiencing these really, really high page load times, nine, 10 seconds, people are falling off the page saying, I'm not gonna complete that request. So you want to know what's causing that, obviously, because it's the problem. And so with RUM in general, the EDA, the old school extra hop RUM bundle, could show you that there are these spikes in load times. It could even show you, like, oh, this is the page that's generally having the load times. But then what? You're kind of stuck at that point. You don't really know what to do from there. With EXA, you're able to actually to log the transactions and store them long term so that if you see a spike, you can just click over into the, the same user experience, click over to the EXA transaction records and start saying, okay, how do I find out what's going on? You can sort things by load time and say, okay, well, it looks like these pages are generally the ones that are the highest load times. And you can see if there's some similarity there. And if there is, you can start drilling in and adding filters. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's awesome about EXA is it doesn't just store these hundreds or millions of logs. It has a thing that got coined VQL, Visual Query Language, which, you know, it, it's this ability to add filters is really what it is. I, I want to be able to drill into my data and filter on pretty much any field that we've saved. It's really an ability to ask questions, right? It's ability yeah. to say, I, I didn't know what I was looking for when I started, uh, and I want to slice data a certain way. Oh, all of my records fell off. Well, take that filter back off. Uh, maybe there's a different pivot that I need to actually care about. It's, uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, it's more of the ad hoc, post hoc 
versus having to know what you're looking for before you actually start looking. Totally true, absolutely. It's the ability to, in real time, interrogate the data to find the answers to the questions that you have, right? So in this case, the example is very much the, why do I have these high load times? So you do things like, oh, I want to see uh, things sorted by the highest load time. Well, it looks like there's this one page that's having problems. Great, show me just requests for that page. Okay, well, it looks like not all of these requests are slow. So let me start digging in and looking at what might be similar and you know remove the columns that are irrelevant. And pretty quickly, what you're able to do is boil down, and this, again, it's a demo, but you're able to boil down and find that in this particular case, the high load times are due to a certain uh, browser type. Somebody's got IE7 running or some crap that's dinosaur age and old <laughs> and irrelevant, and it's causing problems. But you're able to find it in like three minutes, just like clicking around and digging in, like Chris is saying, you just start asking questions and saying, okay, well, what the heck is going on? And that, I mean, being able to pinpoint in your specific example, a specific browser that is causing issues, well, maybe most people would assume, I don't need to support that browser. Well, now you have direct evidence that A, you have users that are on that platform, and B, it is directly affecting those users. Now, it could be that it's such a small percentage of your users. Sure. You don't care, but you now actually have that data to make an informed decision as opposed to it's slow sometimes and we don't know why and we can try and tweak to get it to go away. Yep, and you can do things like go one step further and say, okay, well, let's look at all the requests to, you know, to that page from that browser type historically, and maybe there is a point in time at which you released a new version of your software or your application or whatever it is, that that's what started causing the problem. And you can look at, okay, is it worth it to go back and, you know, retool and undo that change or whatever you might need to do to address the issue. Basically, you know what it comes down to really? More information. We've got this whole thing that we've talked about as an organization about data-driven business decisions. And it's really powerful and it's really true. The EXA, the Explore Appliance, gives you a huge amount of information to make intelligent decisions. And uh, something I'll say with that, because I know that uh, data overload is definitely something that our industry experiences as well, more where more. just raw data isn't super useful. But that's where the EDA and the EXA play amazingly together. It's really, really simple to hop from one platform into the other, from that summary view down to these really deep transaction level views, right? So you can actually really quickly pinpoint, here's the one specific field that I want to pivot around as my starting point, and then know what sort of questions I want to ask. And I think you mentioned with the visual query language, it's as simple as, oh, add this filter, hit X, I don't actually want that filter, it didn't, it didn't provide any additional insight. It lets you really, really quickly pivot around this data without complex pipeline searches, uh, without any sort of data overload. Yeah, it, there's a, a tagline somewhere, it's on t-shirts that ExtraHub has from forever ago, but the line is, go play in traffic. And this feels like that to me. It really is like I'm getting to go like sift through and play in the traffic and go, well, wait, what does it look like if I sort it this way? What if I add this filter? Well, well that didn't work. Hold on. Let me remove that. Let me group it by the application type. Well, that's interesting. How do I dig deeper? And you really get to dig in that way. There's a great example or analogy rather that uh, gets used sometimes. I think it was, I, I heard it first anyway from one of our, Matt, Matt one of our uh, senior, senior field exec type folks that I've known for I don't know, 12 years or something like that now. Um, he's a rock star engineer. And one of the things that he uh, likened us to a while back before the EXA thing was it's like kind of the Hubble telescope, right? You're able to look at things 
at these differing levels of zoom with EDA, the old school extra hop, you're able to go, oh, well, look at the, you know, super high level zoom. I want to see what's the picture of the continent. Then you can zoom down tier after tier after tier to go, wait, give me more, give me more, give me more, down to where you're watching somebody in their backyard barbecuing kind of thing. Um, and you, you, can, you can zoom in and out however you need to based on how much information you need about the data. Like, I want to see things from, you know, the entire deployment all the way down to one particular server that's serving, serving packets, what's happening. Well, it feels to me a lot like this whole EXA thing is adding a microscope to the end of that, right? I, I can go so much deeper. It's not mm -hmm. just show me a device. It's not just show me a user. It's show me every single click and transaction and request that that device or, or user are sending or receiving. And then let me start building these queries that let me show the correlations and differences between those things and what's happening. Is that yeah. somewhat accurate? I mean, I don't know, it makes sense to me. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's actually, uh, uh, I won't get into it, but click path analysis <laughs> is something that I think, I find yeah. this really, really interesting. But and that totally is a- Different beast, let's different not go beast. there on this podcast, but we, we can start offering real value there suddenly, right? Like, wait, what did a user do? What did they do once they saw that page? Which link did they click for mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff, right? It's pretty cool. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, okay. So now I need somebody to draw a picture of a space telescope with a microscope, like <laughs> duct taped to the end, because that's obviously what we have now, right? Absolutely. Clearly. So if someone wanted to try this, how could they try it? In the spirit of loaded questions. Uh, so we have a demo. The team has worked their tails off. Uh, well, the team, TME certainly, but really the whole company. Extra hop. Oh my gosh. Extra it's hop. It's been a, a whole organization effort. There's a really cool... Uh, addition to the demo, you can now go out to extrahop.com, sign up, it's you know a couple clicks, one simple little form, and you can get access to data mm -hmm. that's actually live being used right now. Log into an Extrahop, you can see this stuff. The you new, can modify, you can write your own triggers, you can make your own records. You can do all kinds of stuff. So you can actually see EXA in action and see what it looks like, navigate down to the actual transaction layer, start playing with the filter language that we're talking about. Um, it's pretty cool stuff. And I think that's demo.xdrop.com, um, and that'll take you right to the form, and then it's instantaneous, so you'll just be in automatically. Yeah, there's no, like, wait a week for approval kind of thing. Like, if you put an email address, and you're, you're done, right? Yep. You just you, you go. Um, super cool. Definitely worth checking out if it's at all interesting. I mean, that's definitely the way I recommend getting more information, because I'm one of those hands-on learners. That I, I would love to play with it rather than read a doc, but there's docs too, so. Absolutely. Cool. All right. Well, we're going to wrap the podcast. Anything else you wanted to add? Uh, no. I think that's it. Sweet. Uh, there's tons more with 5.0, like really, really a, a, a bookshelf full of more stuff. We just wanted to pick one topic that we thought was super interesting. I'm sure that in six or eight months when we have another podcast, <laughs> we'll talk more about some other topic from 5.0. Um, but until then, uh, it's been great. Thanks a bunch for joining us. Thanks, guys. Uh, so I was reading Learning the Bash Shell on recommendation from our pointy-haired boss. Super good book. Super like, good like book. Th that, you know, O'Reilly in general is amazing. And if you are at all a command line nerd, like, it's a great, great book. I actually bought a physical copy, if that says anything. Because I've seen my boss's copy, and it's falling apart. Yeah. So if that tells you anything. But I came across a uh, line in this book that makes me 
feel very, very young. <laughs> uh, so, the most obvious use for background jobs is programs that take a long time to run, such as sort or uncompress on large files. For example, assume you just got an enormous compressed file loaded into your directory from magnetic tape. Enormous. Enormous. Let's say the file is gcc.tar.z, which is a compressed archive file that contains well over 10 megabytes of source code files. En enormous. I had to look when this was published to see if this actually applied in my lifetime. It actually does. Uh, I was five, but that's kind of a weird, weird thought that at, even in 20 years, yeah. we've come that far. Congrats, Rachel.